I'd like you to open your Bibles now, if you would, to the epistle of 1 John chapter 5. This evening we're studying once again the 14th through the 17th verses where the Apostle John is speaking on the subject of prayer. And this is one of those messages that when I started out with these verses, I intended that we would be able to finish and maybe... Oh, well, not one part. I knew that couldn't happen. Maybe two parts, but as I got further into this and got deeper into the subject, there's so much here that I, I felt like it was worth expanding now to the uh, four parts and that we're going to uh, speak on the fourth one tonight. And the subject is prayer, which is uh, such a perplexing and confusing problem for many Christians that it, it is worthy for us to spend some extra time on this. Um, the unusual thing about it, I suppose, is that we're approaching the subject of prayer in a little different manner than that usually is approached. Uh, for example, many sermons on prayer, you'll, you may hear something about uh, or include a, what's called an axe acrostic. How many of you ever heard of the axe acrostic concerning prayer? Well, maybe I should have preached on that. There's only two or three of you know about that. Uh, but let me just briefly tell you what that is, because if you'd heard messages on prayer, I would have, surely would have thought that you would have heard about this. But the Acts Acrostic is a way to teach people how to pray. And uh, each of the letters, of course, stands for something according to the way that we approach God in prayer. So the A uh, stands for adoration, that we are to begin our prayers in acknowledgement of who God is. We praise him for his graciousness in answering our prayers. And perhaps we could substitute the word acknowledgement for the A and uh, for adoration uh, because that would correspond to the way that Jesus taught us to pray in the model prayer. Uh, he began that prayer by saying, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And so his prayer began with an acknowledgement that God is the one who hears, that the name of the Father is sacred and to be revered. And so, of course, that would be adoration for God. Then the second letter in the acrostic is C. The C stands for confession. And in order for God to hear our prayers, we must come before him with a clean heart, confessing our sins. And so I suppose that if we wanted to substitute there for the C, for confession, we could also put clean. And that is uh, another way you could complete the acrostic. And then there's the T, A-C-T, and T stands for thanksgiving. And that is when God has answered your previous prayers, then be sure to give him thanks. When he has provided for all of your needs, your spiritual and your material needs, then be sure to thank God because we never want to come before him as ingrates, taking his blessings and never thanking him for them. And then finally, there is the S in Acts, and that S stands for supplication, that we supplicate God uh, and pray that the work of Christ will continue in the world. We pray that God's kingdom will come. We pray for others. We pray for their belief. We pray for the service of Christians and their work for the Lord. We pray for the sick. We pray for the lost. And we supplicate God on all these different issues concerning um, what he does for us and, again, those spiritual and material blessings. And if we remember to do those things, then we will pray in accord with the way that Jesus taught us to pray. But we notice in this particular passage of Scripture that John takes a little bit different tact on the subject of prayer. Uh, you will find some of the acrostic in these verses that we've been studying, but John has a little bit different perspective, and his subject is confidence, 
that our prayers will be heard. And that confidence is based upon the positive assurance that we truly are the children of God. And so here, uh, confidence in prayer is a logical conclusion from the assurance of our salvation. Because we have been born again, because we do have a relationship with God as sons, then we can expect that he is disposed to hear our prayers. So John is... Uh, showing us this great benefit of having assurance. And when we have assurance right, then we can be sure that we can speak to God, that we have a relationship with God in all areas where we need assurance. We know that we have that in our dealings with God. So we look into the scriptures then, and as I said, we have a little bit of different approach to to this. And tonight, we're, we're going to go into the last verses here uh, of this uh, particular section. But if you look at verse number 14, it says, And this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And if we know that he hear us whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. If any man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. All unrighteousness is sin and there is a sin not unto death. Now this evening I want to deal with verses 16 and 17 and these are really intriguing verses and they are somewhat perplexing. But before we get into that, let's just list those previous points that are on your outline. And and, uh, we've talked about these things in the previous messages, and there's a lot of information that goes with that. And I don't have time to go back into it tonight, but let me just give you uh, those blanks there for your listening sheet tonight. And I hope that you'll remember what we've already said. But first of all, there was confidence in prayer, and then the condition of prayer, conformity in prayer, corporate prayer, and intercession in prayer in prayer. And if you'll bear with me for just a moment here, I do want to go back just for a minute here on the second of those points, the condition of prayer, because that provides a natural lead-in to the subject that we have this evening. For prayers to be effective and, and to have the confidence that our prayers will be heard, we must meet God's singular condition. And that condition is found at the end of verse number 14. John says, if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. Now there is a verse that tells us that we do not have carte blanche in prayer. God is the one who knows what's best for us. God has a plan for us. We don't always know what's best for us. We don't know all of the contingencies that are connected to God's plan, to his eternal plan. And so uh, uh, we, we must pray within the will of God. Uh, James made a great statement about God, and one that's very useful for doctrine in a lot of different scenarios. But he said in Acts chapter 15, verse 18, "...known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world." And I can't fail to give you the original context to that statement because I don't want to be like some people who pick things out of the Bible and use them to try to prove a point. And so the original context of of that verse is the salvation of Gentiles. And that statement is a response to Paul and Barnabas concerning the unnecessary act of circumcision of Gentile converts. But this is admission by James that all of the works of God are predetermined, 
that God has determined in eternity past to save Gentiles as well as Jews, and God carries out all of his work irrespective of the works of men. So God never stops and just abruptly changes plans. He knows all contingencies. He knows how all acts of providence have bearing on all other acts of providence. And we don't know those things. We we don't know what God knows. And that might help us to understand that we must pray in the will of God because if God were to answer a prayer that was outside of his will, then how would that affect his eternal plan? And uh, why would you pray for something that would be outside of the will of God? And if it does, if it is outside of God's will, it doesn't happen, then we know why our prayers aren't answered. That's because God did not see fit to answer them because it wasn't his will to do so. You know, I was reading an, an interesting comment the other day about a, uh, from a guy that was arguing against the demonstration, or rather the de- determination of God in the fall of man. And he said that man's fall was not in the will of God except to reluctantly allow it. And I wondered about the use of that word reluctantly when it's applied to God because that means that God might allow something that is against his better judgment. Now, could you imagine that that God is subject to a creature so that he reluctantly allows anything to come to pass? In other words, God makes this thing up as he goes along. And his best judgment says, well, I don't think that's the right thing to do, but I'll allow it to be done. I'll allow something to happen. I don't want it to happen. But because you want it to happen, then it will happen. Doesn't that circumvent God's eternal plan? You can't apply reluctance to God because his judgment is always perfect. So whatever comes to pass, comes to pass because that's the eternal plan. Now, that's a little bit of extra thrown in there to help you a little bit understand just a little bit better verses 16 and 17. So let's take a look at this, and and I do find this to be one of the most interesting parts of the letter. And I want to call point number six on your outline tonight, violations of prayer. Violations of prayer. If any man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, He shall ask, and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not unto death. These are two verses that have lent themselves to some really, at least in my opinion, interesting interpretations. They are part of the uh, most controversial... uh, verses in 1 John, and if you're like me, you thrive on theological controversy. If you don't believe me, ask Gary. He won't take me anywhere. He won't introduce me to any of his friends because he knows I'm going to end up in an argument. But um, I thrive on that theological controversy, and ideally what would happen is that we would be in agreement on every part of Scripture. But we're not inspired like the original writers of Scripture were, so we're not in in perfect harmony with one another, and so we're going to end up with arguments over certain parts of the Scripture. So here's one of those. What does John mean about the sin unto death? And what is a sin that is not unto death? And why can we pray for one and we can't pray for the other? Well, the short answer to that is that it's not in the will of God for us to pray for those who have committed a sin or sins that are unto death. God has a predetermined purpose for a sin that's unto death, and prayer is never going to change that. God's not going to change his purpose for it. 
Now, we're going to break this down a little bit tonight, and we're going to talk about this sin unto death. But before we do that, we do need to acknowledge that there are sins that are committed that are not unto death, and it's perfectly right. It's acceptable for us to pray about those things. When someone falls into sin, we can pray for God to deliver them from it. And we often do that many times, and God answers those prayers. Uh, I think of people, for instance, that have been a part of our church, and they've fallen into sin, and they fall out of the church. So we put them into our prayer page, and we go and see them, we visit them, we try to restore them. Uh, We try to do what's outlined in the scriptures as a proper way to deal with sin in the church. And Jesus gave an outline for that in Matthew chapter 18. He gave all the proper procedures for restoration. And you may remember that that was put into practice by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You may remember the story there of a man who was guilty of an incestuous relationship. And Paul showed the church how they were to deal with that. And one of the things he said, when this kind of sin, certain kinds of sins happen, he says, you need to put that person out of the church. And I'm quite sure that they prayed about that. But we come to 2 Corinthians, and there's an indication that the man was restored, that he had repented of the sin, and so he was brought back into the fellowship of the church. So there are sins that people commit that are not death sins, and it's perfectly all right for us to pray for those people. Now, the interesting thing about this passage, though, is that John did not reveal a specific sin. And so it's quite possible that he has no particular sin in mind, and there's no prohibition in this verse about praying about any particular sin. But there is a statement here that prayers for this particular type of sin will be unsuccessful. And if we were to know the mind of God concerning this, then we should not pray for it because it is against the will of God. So we're going to spend the rest of our time tonight talking about different interpretations of the passage. And then when we get to the end of the message, I'm going to tell you what I think is the right interpretation. So the first one here is one of the Uh, most novel interpretations that I've read, and this comes from J. Ligon Duncan. And I'm going to call this one, letter A in your listening sheet, is untenable prayer for salvation. Untenable prayer for salvation. And uh, that sounds maybe a little bit harder than it is. But I want to quote to you from Ligon Duncan. He says, John is telling us here that we are not to say, Lord, save somebody who you say in your word you will not save. John is saying, don't pray to God to do that. Don't say, Lord, save that person apart from Jesus Christ, even though that person doesn't trust in Jesus Christ, save them anyway. Now, that would, of course, amount to a prayer for someone who is unbelief, commits the sin of unbelief. And there are some who believe that there's only one sin that God condemns people to hell for, and that would be the sin of unbelief. And so Duncan is saying here, don't pray that God would save somebody who remains in unbelief. I mean, since uh, belief in the gospel is the means of salvation, then never pray that God would save somebody even though they don't believe in Christ. Now, to me, that seems to be far too simplistic of an explanation. I mean, after we've had all of these weighty doctrines that have been talked about in the epistle, I don't think that John is going to end this discussion with a statement that says that we're not to pray for unbelievers despite their unbelief. And what Duncan wants to tie that to is the second chapter in verse number 19, where the apostle says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, 
they know, would no doubt have continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. Now, John there is talking about a person who's made a false profession of faith, and he doesn't stay in the church, and that's because his faith isn't genuine. So he leaves the church, and, and that's a proof that he's not a genuine believer. So according to Duncan, he's saying, don't pray for God to save that person anyway. Well, that scenario doesn't make a lot of sense to me because I think John is talking here uh, about specifically about people that preach false doctrine, people that come into the church and tear it up. They destroy the assurance of other Christians. And so I don't think that John is saying, pray for their salvation. Don't pray for their salvation despite all of these heretical activities. I mean, that seems to be too simplistic for me. Now, I will say that I have met a person that seemed to pray in that way. Many years ago, when my dad was debating Church of Christ preachers, there was one of them that made a remark about his mother. And uh, like all good sons, they love their mothers. But this preacher uh, thought that his mother was an unbeliever. And Campbellites are people that teach that you have to be baptized in order to be saved. And even though this man's mother said that she believed in Christ, she hadn't been baptized. So my dad asked him in, in this debate whether he believed that his mother would be in heaven. And he said, well, yes, I believe that she'll be in heaven in spite of the fact that she hasn't been baptized. And so according to his doctrine that he would have God saving a person that was disobedient to the very thing that he thinks brings salvation and God would take her to heaven anyway. Now, of course, he's wrong about the issue of baptism for salvation. Baptism isn't necessary for our salvation. But his response to that did fit the category that Duncan describes here. He prayed that his mother and believed that his mother would be in heaven even though in his mind she was an unbeliever. In other words, Lord, save her even though she is an unbeliever. Then there's a second argument. And this one is advanced by uh, Tertullian in the second century. And he divided this into mortal sins versus venial sins. And that's the position of the Roman Catholic Church today, that there are some sins that God will not forgive, and then there are other sins that are lesser, and uh, they're all right in the sense that you can receive absolution from them. So Tertullian classified grosser sins, sins like murder, adultery, blasphemy, idolatry. Those are sins that are beyond pardon, while there are other sins that are minor infractions of God's law. But the Bible never supports any of those divisions. Uh, David, if you remember, was guilty of both murder and adultery, and yet he prayed and God forgave him of his sin. Then we notice that there's a list of heinous sins that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 6. And I want to read this, and then we'll also note the conclusion of it. He says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. In verse 11, he says, And such were some of you. But ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So it's clear there that a person could even commit the sin of murder. He could commit adultery. He could commit idolatry. 
And even mentioned here is one of the grosser sins of the Bible, according to Scripture, which is homosexuality. And here the Apostle Paul says that if this person will repent and trust Jesus Christ, they can be forgiven of those sins. Now, the problem of classifying sins into mortal and venial is that it deceives people into thinking there are small sins that are unimportant and therefore they're not condemning. And it also leads people to think that they are at least marginally righteous people and that they are good enough to get into heaven just as long as they don't commit the big sins. And that's what someone told me just the other day, a man that I was talking to. He said, I'm pretty good. Uh, I'm okay because I haven't committed any of the big sins. And he was using that for justification of his salvation. Now, the truth of the matter is, if you want to classify it, you can put all sins into one category. All sins are mortal sins. All sins are condemning sins. But at the same time... The Bible teaches that all sins can be forgiven because Christ died to deliver us from all sin. Then there's a third view. And some people think that John is speaking here about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Now, in this case, John would be talking about an unbeliever. And he says, don't pray that an unbeliever that has committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will be saved. God says, this is a sin that is unpardonable. Now, I think most of you are probably familiar with the incident in Scripture where the Bible talks about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And we're, uh, I guess it's a little fortuitous that we talk about this tonight because in just uh, a few weeks, we'll come to this in the 12th chapter of Matthew, and we're going to spend some time, an entire message, talking about the unpardonable sin. And... uh, The sin, of course, is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Now, I'd like you to turn, if you would, to Mark chapter 3. I'm not going to read it to you from Matthew because that's the scripture we're going to read a little bit uh, later in the month or uh, maybe early next month as we talk about that. But here in Mark chapter 3, Jesus speaks about this sin, and this is the same incident that's talked about in Matthew and Luke. And so although we find in the Bible three different times where this sin is talked about, all three times refer to this one particular incident of Jesus' teaching. And in Mark chapter 3, verse 23, And he called them unto him and said unto them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? And if a kingdom be divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house be divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan rise up against himself and be divided, he cannot stand, but hath an end. No man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he will first bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house. Verily I say unto you, all sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, and blasphemies wherewithsoever they shall blaspheme. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation. Now the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is one that is peculiar to one situation. I mean, it needs certain parameters uh, for his sin to be committed. And the same conditions under which that sin could be committed did not exist at the time that John wrote the epistle of 1 John. And those conditions do not exist today. Now, the condition of this is that Jesus must be present 
and that Jesus must do miracles and that people would be so obstinate in their unbelief that they would attribute those miracles not to the power of God but would say it's the work of Satan. And so they blaspheme the Holy Spirit by saying that the work that Christ does is actually done by Satan rather than under the power of God. And God says that anybody that committed that sin would not be saved. That's an unpardonable sin. He will not save somebody from that type of unbelief. Now, you can take from that what you want, and, and, and we're going to get into that, as I said, uh, in another message at a later time. But at least we do know this. It all boils down to this one thing, that God is sovereign in salvation, and God saves whomever he will. And he said he will not save anyone that has committed this sin. But the important thing to remember here is that the conditions are very specific And they don't exist unless Jesus is personally present performing miracles. And so since those conditions did not exist at the time of the writing of 1 John, Jesus had already died and his ministry was over. And since that does not exist in the current day, and since it only occurs during the personal ministry of Christ, then the unpardonable sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit cannot be committed today. That's my belief about that. And you'll notice that as we go through Scripture, the only time that the sin of the of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is ever mentioned is those three times then Matthew, Mark, and Luke that all refer to the same incident. And later on, you never find the Apostle Paul talking about this sin. You don't hear James talking about it. You don't see Jude talking about it. And we don't see the Apostle John talking about that. Now, I think it's clearly evident from what we read here that John is talking about believers in this passage. And this, this, this is something that believers do, that they sin unto death. And so therefore we can't say that this is the unpardonable sin that we find that is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Fourthly, there's this opinion that it means final apostasy from the faith. And so the fourth opinion says that John is talking about a final apostasy that a person who is saved loses his salvation. And if that happens, we're told not to pray for that person to be restored to the faith. Well, that brings up an interesting passage in the book of Hebrews that has its own controversy associated with it, and that's Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. And here the writer says, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. Now, there are many people that interpret Hebrews chapter 6 as being a a case for final apostasy. And they say that there are certain sins that people can commit that their salvation will be taken away from them. Now, oddly enough, though, uh, those who believe in falling from grace and that salvation can be lost also believe that a person who loses his salvation can be saved again. So you can lose your salvation and then regain it. You can lose it and regain it, lose it and regain it. Who knows how many times that could happen. But Hebrews chapter 6, if that's what it means, it's telling us here that if a person ever lost his salvation, that it would be impossible to renew him to repentance. So in other words, the person could never be saved again. But you don't really find people that believe in apostasy that actually go that far. 
Now, it is a controversial passage, and, and I believe that the Scriptures are clear in many other places about apostasy. Salvation cannot be lost so that a person who is truly saved could never fully and finally apostatize from the faith. Now, he may backslide. He might become confused about doctrine. He may not understand things very well. But once he's saved, his salvation can never be taken away from him. So what I think about Hebrews chapter 6 is that the writer is talking about here a hypothetical case, that if salvation could be lost then there's no way for it ever to be regained again because what it would take is a new sacrifice for sins. In other words, Christ would have to be sacrificed again. And then if that happened, that wouldn't even be a final guarantee because the person could lose his salvation again and to get saved again, Christ would have to die all over. Well, you can see, I think, that that's just totally unworkable doctrine. That doesn't fit with the Scripture. And the Bible is much too clear on many other passages about this, that salvation cannot be lost. Now, let me just read you a few of these, and I'll just give you a few. There are many, many of these, and and, uh, it's another doctrine for another day, so I'm not going to uh, go into it very deeply here. But we do have lots of passages concerning it. for example, John 10, 27 to 29, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. First Peter chapter 1 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again into a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith, unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And then a favorite of ours, Romans chapter 8, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Jude, now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. And we could just read many, many, many more on this subject. So it's very clear here that John is not talking about final apostasy from the faith. And he's not warning these people, don't pray for somebody who's lost their salvation, somebody who has apostatized. Well, finally... We come to the right interpretation. What does John mean by a sin unto death? Well, I'll say first that he's not talking about spiritual death here. He's not talking about the apostasy thing. He's not talking about someone who's going to die and go to hell. But rather, he's speaking about, and get it, obstinate sins of believers. Obstinate sins of believers. So he's speaking here to believers, And we have to recognize that first. He says, if a man see his brother sin, and a brother is a believer. And we have to get that part right. And for that reason, he can't be speaking about eternal death. He's not talking about those that lose salvation and are on their way to hell. 
We rule that out because of that previous point that we have on apostasy. But he's speaking here of a believer, and therefore the death is not eternal death, and so he must be talking about physical death, that there are sins that people can commit that lead to physical death. Now, John's not talking here about a specific sin, and that's why he doesn't identify a specific sin. It could be any number of things, but there is a sin that can lead to death. In other words, I'll put it to you simply, God will take your life for obstinate sin. Well, is that sin murder? Is it adultery? Is it idolatry? Well, all of those sins were committed by believers in the Bible. I mean, we've already talked about David with the sin of adultery and also with murder. Solomon was guilty of idolatry when he allowed his foreign wives to worship false gods. So we're not necessarily talking about one act of sin. We're talking about obstinate, repetitive sins. We said, well, has God ever done that before? Do we have any examples where God ever took a Christian's life because he repeated sin? What about the church at Corinth? You remember this and the observance of the Lord's Supper, how that they had made the supper into a drunken feast, how they had shamed the Lord's body and his blood? We read this often when we take the Lord's Supper. Paul says, Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, And so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. And we should know that the word sleep there is a a metaphor in the New Testament for death. Also in the Old Testament, it says the same in the book of Daniel. Many shall sleep in the dust of the earth. And so there he's talking about death. Then we think about Ananias and Sapphira. They they lied to the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 5, and God took their lives. But Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? Whiles it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost, and great fear came on all them that heard these things. Now what John is speaking of here is a person that God has determined that they've gone too far in sin. They've come to a place where they're unrepentant. They won't repent of the sin. Uh, They bring reproach upon the name of Christ. They bring shame on their confession. And so God has determined to take that person's life. And he's telling us here, if you pray for that, it won't do any good. You don't know all of the contingencies that God is dealing with. You don't know how, if God answers a prayer, what will happen. Now, God doesn't take the salvation of this person away, but God takes his physical life. Now, that is a very, very strong warning for anyone that we had better watch out because God's ultimate chastisement on a Christian is death. Now, I think there's something that's very important to add here, and that is that obviously there are people that make professions of faith and they remain out of church. Um, They're out of fellowship with God. 
And much of the time we'll say, oh, well, that, that person's saved. I mean, we haven't seen them forever, but we know that they're saved. They're just backslidden. And so they go on year after year just living like the devil, and they never get straightened up. And what are we actually to conclude about that? Well, I think that we're probably wrong most of the time about them. I think if they're saved, that God might have already taken their lives. And since they're persisting in their sins, they're obstinate about it, then it's not likely that they're a believer. And so we are to treat them as unbelievers, and we pray for them as unbelievers. But John says there is a sin unto death, and in God's eternal purpose, he has decided to take the life of a believer. And I'm sorry to say, that might be somebody's mom, might be somebody's dad, their brother, their sister, a good friend. They might be in that category. And John is telling us here, prayer for them will not do any good. Now, why would he say such a thing? And why does he want us to know this? Well, he's talking about confidence in prayer, isn't he? And you may be wondering, why doesn't God answer that prayer? I mean, that, that person out there that I've been praying for, and, and they said that they were saved, and they said that they were believers, and, and, and I suppose that they are, but God never brings them back. They never, they never repent. They never come back. Well, what John is trying to tell us here, don't be upset with God. Don't be upset with God because he hasn't answered the prayer. It's not within his will. And when you pray for it, it's out of God's will because God's decision has already been made. God has decided to take their life. Now, we have an addition here in verse number 17. It says, all unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not unto death. Now, here it's telling us that what we can't do is we can't just categorize our sin as just little mistakes that we make. We can't say, oh, well, that's unimportant. All unrighteousness is sin. That means every sin offends the holy God. And there are sins that Christians commit that God doesn't take their lives for them. They might persist in them, but... God doesn't take their life. Now, John doesn't tell us what those are because I don't think John knows. I don't think anybody knows. You don't know. And so what you'd better do is heed the warning. So you don't go away and you say, oh, you've done something over and over again. And so you hunker down and you say, well, it's okay. I'm fine. God hasn't done anything about it. God's really not concerned about it. God really doesn't care about that sin. You don't know at what point that God is going to say, enough is enough. And then he takes your life, maybe in a split second, or maybe in agonizing months, he takes your life. You know, I seriously doubt that people that ignore their Christian duty are actually saved. I mean, I, I seriously doubt the salvation of people that can lay out of church year after year after year, never care anything about the people of God, never care about the Word of God, never pray, never have a, what seems to be any kind of relationship with God. And they go in a long, long time in that condition. And I think most likely they're not saved. But if you see someone in that condition that dies prematurely, then you might have an answer as to whether they were saved or not. They had sinned a sin unto death. And there is no amount of prayer that's going to save them from that physical death. So we have to be careful because God has expectations. God has a plan and nothing alters God's plan. And then one more thing. Don't come to me and ask me if somebody has sinned a sin unto death. I have no idea. I don't know. 
Don't ask me about somebody. They said they're saved and they died or whatever, or they get sick or whatever. Have they committed some kind of a sin? I don't know. It's not my business to pry into God's decisions. The only business I have is to pray, and if it's in God's will, then his will will be done. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we're dealing with some very, very important information here. Strong warnings that the Apostle John has given us about sin in our lives. And no Christian ought to live in such a way as he brings dishonor to the Lord, brings dishonor to his confession. And we know, Lord, that there can come a time and you say, it's gone too far, enough is enough, and this person will not do what they're supposed to do. And so you take their life. And, Lord, we just pray that we'll be very much aware that, that we have to guard ourselves at all times, that our lives are what they should be, and that we live the way you want us to live. We've been saved for your purpose. We're left here in this world to be a witness for you. And if we don't do that, then we can't expect that anything good's going to come from it. Lord, we just ask that you would help us to, to do your will. Bless us tonight. We thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.